Hey, one and all, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today on our show, take two hits of ecstasy and call me in the morning. Could psychedelic drugs become legalized medicine in the near future? You'd have to have been tripping to think so about 40 years ago when psychedelics were outlawed and merely researching their effects, their safety, and their possible medical use was declared completely off-limits. But in the ensuing years, ever so gradually, ever so quietly, the ban on psychedelic research has been easing. Studies have resumed, and results have been accumulating. Promising results on the use of drugs like LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin for a variety of psychiatric conditions, like post-traumatic stress disorder. And now, if things pan out, the first large-scale drug trials could begin in just the next few years. Official FDA approval could come next. In fact, MDMA, colloquially known as ecstasy, could be green-lighted for prescription use in treating PTSD as soon as 2021. Other psychedelics used for other conditions could follow suit. It is pretty mind-blowing to contemplate that, considering the zero-tolerance policies of the past. And uh, it has come about both as a result of shifting cultural attitudes towards things like medical marijuana and the concerted efforts of groups like the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS for short. MAPS is a nonprofit that's been working for decades to open up and sponsor research into the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. The story of how they have so far succeeded in that endeavor the kinds of research they've been doing and what it shows, and how psychedelics might at long last become pharmaceutically legit is a fascinating one, and we are going to hear all about it in the hour ahead from Rick Doblin. He is the executive director of MAPS and has been leading it ever since he founded the organization almost 30 years ago. Stay tuned. Tell me about your history with this subject. As I understand it, it goes way back to even before you completed your, your undergraduate degree. You were already working on some of these questions? Yeah, well, I'm exceptionally fortunate. When I decided what I wanted to do with my life, I was 18 years old and at college in my first year and had a series of really important uh, LSD experiences and some experiences with mescaline as well and realized that the research that had been underway in many places all over the world with psychedelics had been shut down. And so I decided that I would devote myself to becoming a psychedelic therapist and trying to bring the research back. And so I just feel really lucky that the idea that I had at 18 still makes sense and has uh, now become a little bit more appreciated by the wider world as well. When you were doing this at 18, this was the 1970s? 1971 is when I started college, and 1972 is when I figured out what I wanted to do. <laughs> at that time, uh, just possessing these drugs in many cases could get you a, a pretty hefty prison term, couldn't it? It could, and I, I was already a draft resistor, uh, anticipating going to jail for not willing to go to Vietnam. and I, I didn't want to run away to Canada. At the same time, though, I believed from what I observed in the wider culture, that the use of psychedelics, while it has its risks, and many people approached it recklessly, uh, still the benefits were enormous and had been used by people for thousands of years, and that the crackdown on the research and the criminalization of these drugs was 
more based upon political concerns rather than on any kind of rational assessment of the dangers of these drugs and that the potential benefits of these drugs have been tragically suppressed for over 40 years and only now are we starting to understand what the potential is. I mean, there was just an editorial uh, on Sunday in the New York Times. Uh, yeah, I saw it, yeah. Yeah, it talked about how psilocybin could have a tremendous impact on American public health. It was about depression specifically, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And and the article was uh, by a woman who described taking psilocybin, but there was hardly any notice made to the fact that that was an illegal activity. Right, right. And it was all focused on what she learned and how important it was for her in her life. And I think that what she's highlighting is that more and more mainstream Americans are realizing that the drug war and the criminalization of psychedelics, marijuana, and other drugs are, are counterproductive and are not helping. And we talk a lot about new approaches that would involve harm reduction and also understanding that there are benefits and enhancing the benefits that society can get from these drugs. Um, speaking of psilocybin, I've read that one of the earliest things that you did was to revisit the famous Good Friday uh, experiment uh, that took place in 1962 <laughs> uh, in, in Boston. Uh, this is where a number of test subjects were um, put in a chapel on Good Friday. Some of them were given psilocybin. This is part of the uh, Harvard psilocybin project headed up by Timothy Leary, I guess. Some of them were given psilocybin, some weren't. Some were given a placebo, which was niacin. And the researchers uh, (laughs) observed them to see if they experienced something like a a spiritual condition. But you, as a very young man, uh, did you do your own experiment, or did you simply analyze the results of that experiment? I I did a long-term follow-up to that experiment, and this was in the middle 1980s when I had returned to college and was at New College of Florida, which is an experimental college, uh, the Honors College of the state of Florida, that requires everybody to do a senior thesis. And I wanted to do something related to psychedelic research, but at the time, uh, the FDA was still blocking all studies, and studies were shut down all over the world still. And so the only way that I could do psychedelic research was to figure out how to do a study that didn't involve actually administering psychedelics, And then I noticed that the Good Friday experiment, which had been an inspiration to me and to many other people as one of the most important psychedelic research studies ever conducted, that the person who had conducted that study, Dr. Walter Pankey, had died in 1971 in a scuba diving accident and had never done a long-term follow-up to that study. And so I decided that that would be a project that wouldn't require government permission since it wasn't actually administering psychedelics and would actually be more important than administering psychedelics to new people in a similar experiment because the real key issue is not what kind of experiences people have under the influence of psilocybin or other psychedelics but what are the long-term impacts on their lives so i was able to find and track uh, 19 of the 20 people in the experiment These were people in 1962. They were in Divinity School at Andover Newton Theological Seminary. They were intending to be ministers, so they were already social justice-minded. But what they pointed out in the long-term follow-up interviews is 
those people that had the psilocybin, most of them had a mystical experience at some point during the Good Friday service. And this took place at Boston University Chapel with Reverend Howard Thurman, who was Martin Luther King's mentor. And Martin Luther King had gotten a Ph.D. from Boston University. And what they pointed out is that the mystical sense of connection, of unity, which is the essence of this mystical experience, helped them to identify that deeper than their religion and their culture and their race and their gender, that they were part of the web of life on this planet, part of the human family, and that we have more uh, in harmony with other people and with life itself than we have differences. And they talked about how that experience motivated and inspired them to get involved in many of the social justice activities of the 1960s, including the civil rights movement, the environmental movement, women's rights, and that it seemed to me that from their testimony that these were people who were talking about what happened when psychedelics went right, when people had profound experiences and got more involved in trying to build a better world, and that that was the heart of the conflict in the 60s, where psychedelics were identified with people that were challenging the status quo, and the mainstream society reacted in a way that attempted to suppress that. And then the psychedelics got criminalized, and the <laughs> research so, got all stopped. That, that is something I wanted to ask you, Rick, your theory of what went wrong historically, because if we go back to the 1950s, uh, before psychedelics were really politicized, you find all kinds of people talking about them either uh, detachedly or, or positively. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, people like Claire Booth Luce, you know, yeah. uh, a U.S. ambassador to Italy uh, and famously, you know, conservative uh, mainstream celebrities like Cary Grant. And the list is quite long. People who took LSD, for instance— and uh, for whom it was not identified with uh, freaking out and dropping out and all these other things, right? Um, yeah. And you had mainstream magazine articles, one famous one about uh, psilocybin, right? Was that Time magazine or was it Life? I can't remember. Life. 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 But then come the 60s, it gets identified with anarchy, revolution, long-haired youth, all the things that were scaring uh, establishment types and... Uh, and they clamped down. Uh, is is that why, do you think, uh, it was simply because it was um, regarded as part and parcel of just all kinds of rebellious activities? Well, I think that's the, the heart of it. I think at the same time, there was a lot of irresponsible use, and people did have uh, tragedies, uh, outcomes that were not good at all. So there was some of the fear of Americans for their children, but at the, at the same time, I think those were minor and vastly exaggerated. It was more about the connection between these drugs and the people that were using them and the challenging the status quo. But at the same time, the core aspects of the experience itself, kind of the dissolution of the ego, the transcending of normal boundaries, and the uh, sort of mystical, spiritual intuitions that people were having, they ran up against a culture that was in no way prepared for the experience, for the content of the psychedelic experience. So, for example, uh, people didn't really talk about death. Uh, the hospice movement wasn't invented till 1974 when the first hospice was there. So the, the ego death or the death-rebirth experience was frightening to people. 
birth was medicalized, women were tranquilized, men weren't allowed in the delivery room. Yoga and meditation were just starting to be rediscovered, and we had the Maharishi come with the Beatles, and it seemed like these were foreign implants from a strange and distant culture. And so our culture itself has taken 40, 50 years to evolve to appreciate the content of the psychedelic experience. The core aspects of the psychedelic experience are now more in tune with the culture, and we have a chance to mainstream the use of psychedelics for social benefit in people who are not identified as hippies. And, in fact, that was the um, sort of pull quote in the article in the Sunday New York Times about how psilocybin is no longer just for hippies. (laughs) Well, I'm wondering, though, in this 40-year effort of yours, you know, you started at a time when um, psychedelics were politically radioactive, (laughs) you know? I mean, taboo. We've reached a point now where they can be discussed with a certain amount of calm, dispassionate uh, uh, reason in the pages of the New York Times and a lot of other places. I mean, I see stuff showing up everywhere. But do you feel like a special kind of onus to distance yourself from hippiedom? Uh, Do you have to... No, no, not at all. In fact... (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll just say that there was a great article last week in the Financial Times, the you know British equivalent of the Wall Street Journal, about our work with MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder and other psychedelic research, and that that felt to us like a major milestone. So I, I feel that uh, I don't need to distance myself from uh, hippiedom, but I do think that there was a fundamental mistake that was made by Tim Leary and others, which was to self-define as counterculture that we are somehow or other defined by what we are against rather than what we are for. And that when you define yourself as counterculture, you're going to generate this massive resistance and crackdown. So my whole effort has been to realize that you can use psychedelics and still become a contributing member of our society. Like right now I'm talking to you from uh, sort of classic, I've got a house in uh, uh, suburb outside of Boston. I got a picket fence. I got uh, a mortgage, uh, children. Uh, I've got, you know, the whole catastrophe, as Zorba talks <laughs> about. And that I haven't been um, influenced by my psychedelics to run off to some private utopia or go back to the land and, uh, you know, go to some isolated place and farm the land. That, that I'm part of mainstream culture and yet influenced in my values and my activities by psychedelics. And then that's also reflecting the fact that psychedelics have been used for thousands of years and have often had honored places in society. And even in the roots of our Western culture, the Greeks, the longest-running mystery ceremony was the Eleusinian Mysteries that ran from around 1600 B.C. to around 400 A.D., squashed by the Catholic Church as a sort of competing religion. But... We had all of our uh, founders of Greek thought participated in these mysteries. So I I think we're now coming back into balance and that this identification as counterculture was, you know, self-destructive in some ways. But the culture was so unforgiving and unwelcoming that you can understand how people would want to distance themselves from the Vietnam War, from the incredible prejudice of uh, racism and things. But that... I think the the key difference now is is that we are really um, trying to be part of 
uh, mainstream society with our interest in psychedelics and to help face the challenges that are just incredibly mounting in our society, which I think we can overcome if we have a sort of deeper spiritual grounding. Rick, you yourself said that the the participants in the Good Friday experiment back in 1962, you know, had life-changing experiences that caused them to become more socially active, socially aware, and all of that. So which is it? Are experiences like this sort of ideologically neutral, or do they turn you into a uh, liberal or a lefty, to put it really... <laughs> Put it in really stupid terms. Um, I think that the experiences themselves are transcending of traditional boundaries of who we think we are. So I, I do feel that this, the direction of psychedelic experiences towards opening oneself up to both repressed emotions and also to these um, deeper senses of connection do have a moderating effect on certain kind of senses of superiority for one's religion or one's nationality, and that they do breed a certain kind of understanding and appreciation for people that are different. Now, I don't think that makes people liberal necessarily. You can, <laughs> you can have conservatives who are not racists, and you can have liberals who are <laughs> racist in some ways. But I think that there is something fundamentally healing of the psychedelic experience. But at the same time, the culture and the support is more important than just the drug itself. Stan Groff, who's the world's leading uh, LSD researcher, has talked about LSD as being a nonspecific amplifier of the unconscious, kind of like uh, dreams, that, that things emerge into our awareness in LSD uh, brings out what's already within us, and that what we do with those experiences can be healing, can be disruptive if we're not prepared. And so I think that talking about psychedelics as we're doing now as therapeutic tools or as tools for uh, spirituality, you know, there's an estimated 100,000 people a year going down to Brazil and Peru for ayahuasca experiences, the psychedelic tea from the Amazon. There's an incredible hunger for these kind of experiences, and I do feel that if they're more widespread in our culture, we'll move more away from fundamentalism towards uh, communal uh, spirituality, that there's something healing, I think, if we can create a supportive, therapeutic, uh, and spiritual context for the way in which these drugs are used. So I can imagine, I don't want to uh, dwell too long on the political angle, but I can imagine some people uh, on some parts of the political spectrum bristling at some of the words you used, you know, <laughs> saying that does sound like, a, that yeah. does sound like well, a crypto leftism to me, you know. Well, I, I agree. See, I mean, I, I don't want to, I appreciate the focus on the political. I mean, I have a master's and a PhD from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government in public policy precisely because the politics were blocking the science in our culture for roughly 40 years, and I want to try to figure out how to undo that. So I think that um, there is um, something transformative about the potential of psychedelics in a way that isn't counterculture, but that does help the culture become more mature 
And I do think that those people that are invested in uh, certain kind of identifications with their own groups, men are better than women or, you know, Christians are better than Muslims or, or any kind of, you know, rich people are better than poor people, all these kind of ways in which people separate themselves from others and then sometimes, um, you know, lose a sense of compassion, that there is a way in which psychedelics have political implications. And, and so I think we should be um, honest about that. And, and I do believe that that's um, the case, and that is why I've dedicated my life to trying to bring them back, because I think it will help bring a healthier culture. And for those people that say, you know, let's say denying climate change is, you know, an advantage or somehow or other, you know, I, I would question that. And I would question whether fundamentalism, you know, is really good for society or good for the world. So there are political implications uh, of the psychedelic experience gone well. But you could say that's the same as psychotherapy or as people becoming more mature. But that doesn't mean that people all of a sudden will say, yes, let's just, you know, raise taxes and, you know, give everybody, you know, guaranteed income or, or that... I think there's a wide range of views, political views, of people in the psychedelic community. Um, but I would say that there is a, maybe an enhanced tolerance and appreciation, um, less of a sense of arrogant superiority. Do you or does somebody in your organization, uh, MAPS, i.e. the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, spend time uh, lobbying politically? And have you won oh, over... Yes. Have you won yes. over allies uh, across the spectrum? Do you have uh, people on the right who, who support your efforts? Yes. Well, f- first off, um, let me just say that MAPS is a 501c3, which we're a nonprofit um, organization. We can lobby with 20% of our budget, but we have not of yet lobbied to change laws. We've just tried to get regulations enforced, in a sense, and, and open up the door to research. Um, and one of the things that we're focusing on quite a lot is that we are lobbying to try to end the federal obstruction of medical marijuana research that's privately funded and aimed at making marijuana into an FDA-approved prescription medicine. And one of our allies in that is Grover Norquist, who is one of the sort of senior Republican (laughs) advisors who happens to be on the libertarian spectrum. And there's a government monopoly on the supply of legal marijuana, DEA-licensed marijuana, that can be used in FDA-approved research. And it's outrageous because that monopoly doesn't provide very good quality. We're still waiting. Uh, we've been approved in March for a study we're going to do with marijuana for veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, and we're trying to compare marijuana with THC in it with marijuana with CBD in it, cannabidiol, and NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, that has the government monopoly, still doesn't have marijuana with CBD in it that's available for researchers, and yet they're supposedly you know, having an adequate supply. So we do lobby to try to end the federal obstruction of uh, privately funded medical marijuana research. We're also considering starting a project uh, relating to lobbying to amend the RAVE Act. That was one of the most perverse things that uh, now Vice President Biden did when he was a senator. It was uh, around 2001 when there was this sort of peak of the hysteria of MDMA, one supposedly one-dose 
cause permanent brain damage, and young people were taking MDMA at raves. And so then Senator Biden led an effort to pass the Rave Act, which criminalized festival organizers, bar owners, who offered harm reduction services to people because that meant that they knew people were using drugs at their facilities or their events. So instead of saying, yes, people are using these experiences and we want to make it um, as safe as possible, we adopted as a culture uh, a policy to try to maximize the harms that came from these drugs in order to scare more people away from using them. So it was a perverse situation. And so we're um, finally working now with a tragic case, actually, of a woman whose daughter uh, died from MDMA at a rave. MDMA does have dangers, uh, especially when used in non-medical contexts. Occasionally, some people can overheat and die. And so harm reduction methods provide free water, chill-out rooms where people can uh, stop dancing and cool off, uh, People don't have to be stigmatized if they ask for help. They can ask for help right away and not worry about arrest. And so this woman, with the tragic situation, I'm a father of three, and so I can only imagine, I don't even want to imagine, you know, what she had to go through. But instead of blaming MDMA, she blamed the criminalization of harm reduction as what really did in her daughter and is now working with the senator to try to introduce a bill to amend the Rave Act. So we feel that the political work that we do is really in favor of science over politics and harm reduction and compassion over harm maximization and heartlessness. And it's an essential part of what we do as well as the science trying to develop and sponsor data studies that we'll eventually we'll use to submit to FDA to develop psychedelics and marijuana into prescription medicines. Uh, my sense is that it, it only takes one or two sensational horror stories to undo or override hundreds of positive stories. And, of course, we have the famous example from the 1960s of Art Linkletter's daughter. And my understanding is that, in fact, it never was found that she actually used LSD on that day when she jumped out of a window and died. And yet LSD was blamed, and everybody knows the story, and it was used as a kind of cautionary tale. I wonder, do you kind of stay awake at night worrying about recreational use that is going to kind of undo all the careful work you've done? Well, first off, you're right, you're right about Art Linkletter's daughter. She had tried LSD months before, and she was not under the influence of LSD when she committed suicide. And her brother also committed suicide. So it was convenient to blame LSD rather than other factors. And who, who knows why people actually commit suicide. It differs in every different case. But... My, my feeling is, is different from yours in the sense that I do not feel that we're at a place in our culture now where the tremendous beneficial results that are coming out of psychedelic research all over the world could be undone by a few tragedies in the recreational setting. I think that the, there's been a major cultural transformation. And at the same time, there's this growing disillusionment with prohibition and the excessive over-incarceration and the racist aspects of the drug war. So not only are we seeing a growing number of psychedelic research studies being positively reported in the media, but we're also seeing uh, disenchantment with prohibition itself as a response. And so I, I do feel concerned about problems that come from recreational use, and precisely because I want to demonstrate 
how a post-prohibition world could operate in a way that minimizes the harms and maximizes the benefits, MAPS has a whole series of projects which we call the Zendo Project because of a structure that was a Zen Meditation Center Zendo that we were donated uh, to use at Burning Man. And what we do at Burning Man and elsewhere is organize people who are uh, psychiatrists, physicians, psychologists, psychotherapists, social workers, nurses, and others who are just skilled in this area to assist people that are having difficult psychedelic experiences in order to try to minimize the number of those bad outcomes that can come when people take psychedelics often of unknown, uh, so, you know, unknown what, what they actually are and also in more risky environments. And so we work at festivals around the world developing a model of self-regulation in a sense of um, people helping other people in a volunteer, Good Samaritan kind of a way, often sitting with them for six, eight hours or longer and helping transform uh, difficult experiences which might have been called bad trips into learning experiences that people can often be grateful for. And so I think that's one of the things we're trying to do uh, to try to minimize the chance of a backlash and, and demonstrate that we can move successfully to a post-prohibition world. And it won't solve all the problems. You know, drugs are risky in many different ways, and there's always going to be problems. You know, people are always dying from uh, skiing and running into trees or from climbing mountains and avalanches or scuba diving, jumping out of airplanes. Or... Uh, yeah, or you could use the argument that's been used a million times before, that, you know, more damage is done by alcohol in a single day, perhaps, than by the use of psychedelics over the course of maybe a year. But that argument has never really uh, seems to have persuaded anybody who's opposed to psychedelics. I've n never quite well, understood why. Well, I think that people have a sense that with alcohol, there are benefits, and at the same time, there are risks. And the same is true for all the sports that I mentioned. Yes. Or mountain climbing. But because of this massive propaganda to justify the cruelty of the drug war, many people have been miseducated to believe that there are no benefits from these drugs. I see. That it's all hedonistic abuse, it's delusions, it's hallucinations. You know, if you read the information from the DEA or from the Nationalist on Drug Abuse about these drugs, you've got to wonder, why would anybody ever take them? <laughs> yeah. There's this whole list of negativity. So I think yeah. for psychedelics, what the FDA does is balance risks and benefits, and every drug has side effects and risks. But are the benefits outweighing? And so we've had a situation with psychedelics where any risk was so great that could justify prohibition because there were no benefits. And that's where I think you were saying that uh, the fear is that, you know, one or two well-publicized strategies can overwhelm 100, you know, positive articles about studies. But I think that's no longer the case. Well, Rick, let's let's talk about the benefits of psychedelics then. Uh, this is something I've been wanting to get to. Your, your organization, MAPS, of course, its uh, central mission is to conduct research to uh, explore the therapeutic uh, potential of psychedelic drugs for various kinds of conditions. You guys have been sponsoring research for quite some time now, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, tell us how you're able to even do this research with substances like MDMA, LSD, something called Ibogaine, uh, which I guess is a psychedelic from Africa, yeah. uh, ayahuasca. How are you able to even do research with those? And then, then I'll ask you about the research itself. Well, the, the 
Controlled Substances Act of 1970 that criminalized psychedelics, criminalized all sorts of other drugs, also was created at a time when it was recognized that there were potential medical benefits. And so the laws that created our system of prohibition also created the opportunity for research to be done with these drugs. And so in order to get permission to do research with highly regulated and controlled drugs, we need to get approval from the Food and Drug Administration, from institutional review boards that were set up after the World War II, after the Nazi experiments on people in the concentration camps, the Nuremberg trials, so that uh, now all human research has to be reviewed by institutional review boards or ethics committees that look for the safety of the human subjects. And we have to get approved by the Drug Enforcement Administration to make sure that the drugs used in the studies are not diverted from medical to non-medical uses. And with the marijuana, one of the ways that the federal government obstructs and restricts research is there's an entirely new and additional review process um, created in 1999 by the Health and Human Services. So the Public Health Service has to review marijuana protocols as well. And then California is the only state in the country that has its own review board called uh, the Research Advisory Panel of California that reviews research with Schedule One drugs. They, they used to be called the California Research Advisory Panel, whose acronym was, was CRAP. <laughs> and they finally realized that and changed it to the Research Advisory Panel of California. But there are multiple levels of regulatory review, and we just have to get approval from all of them. And you've managed to do so. Uh, and also, from what I've read, uh, some of this research takes place um, in other countries where perhaps the, the restrictions aren't as uh, onerous, right? Well, actually, we, we did have an international strategy early on, starting in the, um, in the 80s and, and 90s, when it was really hard to get research here in the United States. But what we found is that the U.S. has sadly been very successful in exporting our drug policy all over the world. And so it's really not any easier to get permission in um, other countries than it is in the U.S. And once the FDA changed their approach, and in 1990 a new group of people at the FDA took over the review of psychedelics from the people that had previously blocked it for 20 years. And they decided in a special meeting with an advisory committee and um, hearings that, that uh, took place in 1992 that research would be resumed and that the same standards that are, the FDA applies to any pharmaceutical company trying to make a drug into a medicine would apply to psychedelics and marijuana. Once that happened, then it became easier to get permission both in the U.S. and around the world. And so now we find that we've had studies in Israel, Canada, Switzerland. We're about to start a study in England. We had a study in Spain. There's research going on with psychedelics and multiple countries, and this is something that's now proceeding pretty much in harmony all over the world. Now, the challenge with plant-based medicines like ayahuasca or peyote or um, even marijuana is that in order to do research, you need a standardized supply, and it's a challenge to get a standardized supply of ayahuasca, which is made... Mm you know, differently uh, sure. batches or yeah. Ibogaine. Um, so that, that's the fundamental challenge. But the FDA, again, and, and the European Medicines Agency have 
developed ways to evaluate the risks of these drugs and these plants when they're administered in their whole plant form. So we've heard many people say that marijuana can never become a medicine because there's over 400 different compounds in it, and every single one would need to be studied, and it's just astronomical in the cost. But the FDA has said that you can take plant-based medicines, and once you have standardized it, which is possible but difficult, once you've done that, then you can examine the toxicity of the compound as a whole without having to isolate all of the different things in it and figure out separately what what their toxicities are. Oh, interesting, interesting. So um, tell us about some of the results you've gotten. What conditions have you looked at, uh, and what has been the result of uh, attempting to treat them with some of the psychedelics we've been talking about? Well, the the conditions that we've looked at are well-chosen both for matching them with the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, and also we've chosen conditions that... Uh, people, mainstream people would be sympathetic with and also that are considered diseases. So, for example, our top priority is MDMA, which is the most gentle of all the psychedelics, and it reduces fear and anxiety, and we've decided that working with post-traumatic stress disorder with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is likely to be a successful route through the FDA. And we've had tremendous results with treatment-resistant subjects, many of whom have had PTSD for decades, some from Vietnam, some from childhood sexual abuse, and others more recently from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars and, and more recent problems. We've also started a new study at Harbor UCLA with autistic adults with social anxiety and have found that MDMA has helped people to understand their own emotions, understand other people's emotions, read body language, and that lessons have been beyond which the time the MDMA is actually taking effect. So in a sense, these are non-drug approaches designed to help people improve their psychological functioning without the need of drugs after the therapy. So these are fundamentally different than the classic pharmaceutical model of here's a pill, take this every day for the rest of your life, and if you stop taking the pill, your symptoms come back. We're saying this is mostly psychotherapy. We're going to enhance it with psychedelics taken a few times, and then at the end of the psychotherapy, you're not going to need drugs at all when it goes successfully, which it does for many people. We're also about to start a study in San Anselmo with MDMA for people with anxiety related to life-threatening illnesses. We completed a study in Switzerland with LSD for people with anxiety from life-threatening illnesses. And what I'm most proud of in that study, it was just a small pilot study in 12 people. We still managed to get statistically significant results, and 11 of the 12 of those people had never done LSD before. So this, again, is not just for hippies. It's for people that you know, are struggling with various issues. We've done also work with ayahuasca and ibogaine in the treatment of addiction, and what uh, many people don't realize is that Bill W., who started AA, actually got sober through a, a psychedelic experience, Belladonna, which is not one that we use today because it's got so many negative side effects as well. But that helped Bill W., and then later in the 50s, he took LSD after he was sober and felt that it could have a tremendous role in the treatment of addiction. So we've been able to do observational studies with drugs that so far have been um, plant-based medicines that have not been 
developed into ways that are standardized, but we can observe how these uh, drugs are used. Uh, you know, the Native American Church uses peyote to help people, Indians, with alcoholism. Uh, so we've gotten tremendous results in the treatment of addiction. And what we're trying to show there is that people who um, might normally think of psychedelics as drugs of abuse, that when used properly, they can help people with drug abuse problems by bringing to the surface things that they've suppressed and denied and not wanted to see, but then also by giving them a sense of connection, positive affirming experiences. Um, we're starting to do some research at least to help some people with MDMA for couples therapy, but politically we're not putting much energy into that or funds because a difficult relationship is not a disease, <laughs> although it might feel like that. And so the FDA, there's no route really to open the door at the FDA to couples therapy. So so in some sense, you have to at least pay lip service to the uh, DSM. Uh, um, I would say more than lip service, yeah. I mean, <laughs> pra- practically to develop a drug into a medicine through the FDA, right. we have to work with uh, known diseases. Right. Um, you can do research and, and with other indications. So we can do research with couples therapy. There's research at Johns Hopkins and elsewhere at NYU into the spiritual uses of psilocybin in religious professionals. There's research in Switzerland now with lifelong Zen meditators getting brain scans before and after a Zen meditation retreat during which they're going to get psilocybin. So what we're seeing, which is tremendously exciting, is the coming together of science and religion, science and spirituality and meditation, whereas in the 60s, once we had this you know, explosion of interest in psychedelics, and then the massive backlash, what we saw was a lot of people decided that they would explore non-drug alternatives, both to ground the experiences that they had before to integrate them, and also because these non-drug approaches were, were legal, and it'd be hard to, to um, criminalize meditation or things mm-hmm. like that. But there was this tendency among people to say, yes, you know, we're meditators, and you know, we've outgrown drugs, and now what we see after all these years later is this recognition that you can have a meditative spiritual life occasionally punctuated by profound experiences with psychedelics that can then deepen the meditation and give people a sort of a reference point to then try to integrate into their normal meditative practice. So I think this idea of religion and spirituality and the sort of revitalization of the mystical quest and a, a sense of helping people who are kind of caught in fundamentalist approaches to to deepen their spiritual practice, that those are um, happening more. So the research is um, tremendous. Accidental discoveries have been made with cluster headaches that LSD and psilocybin helped block uh, the cycle of cluster headaches, suicide headaches, uh, worse than migraines. And we were trying to do a study at Harvard with um, LSD or psilocybin and cluster headaches, and they, we were told that you know this was where Timothy Leary was, and it had to be the last resort before they would approve it. And so we started a study with a drug called Bromo LSD, which is a non-psychedelic version of LSD uh, with cluster headaches. We thought it wouldn't work, and then we'd be back at Harvard Medical School saying, now is the time to do the LSD research, and to our... Um, surprise, uh, Bromo LSD worked, and it worked even better than LSD and psilocybin. Wow. And we should say that we're talking about standard research protocols uh, using placebos, double-blind procedures, and statistical tests of significance. So this is not just 
you guys going off and uh, optimistically uh, trying some stuff and thinking subjectively that you, you've seen some positive results. But summing it up, where are we? Are these just suggestive studies? Are these just promising indications that maybe uh, some of these um, chemicals actually work to treat certain conditions? Or have you guys, I mean, dare I say, proven something <laughs> at this point? Um, I would say that we have not proven it yet because the system of proof that is required by FDA to make a drug into a medicine requires large-scale multi-site phase three studies. And where we're at now is in the earlier phase two pilot studies. And by next summer, we are going to have the conclusion of our international series of Phase two pilot studies for MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder will have treated about 90 people uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder, and then we'll, we've got very promising results, but we've not proven conclusively. But we will then go to FDA and say, here's the results, and now here's the design of the phase three studies. And we anticipate that um, if we can raise the funds and train the therapists, that by 2021 we'll have MDMA approved as a prescription medicine by FDA for post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think we have to be very respectful of the fact that uh, proof, as defined by FDA, is still uh, a large step which we've not yet uh, succeeded in doing. Similarly with marijuana, you know, we've got roughly 23 medical marijuana states. We've got uh, bunches of states now that have legalized marijuana. We have a lot of phase two pilot studies with marijuana, but the large-scale phase three studies with marijuana have been actively suppressed for 40 years. And so those are not yet in existence either to make the marijuana plant. But there are GW Pharmaceuticals is trying to make the extracts of marijuana into prescription medicines. They're in the midst of a series of phase three studies and have been approved in multiple countries. But I feel like we are not wanting to get ahead of ourselves and what, what we're coming up against is a culture that has in the past exaggerated the risks and denied the benefits. And we have to be very careful not to do the opposite, not to exaggerate the benefits and deny the risks. Now, all these drugs that I've mentioned, like you know, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, uh, mescaline, marijuana, they're all off patent. And the major pharmaceutical companies are uh -huh. not interested in developing them. The government uh -huh. so far have not supported the research. We've just received word last week that we've been recommended for a $2 million grant for a marijuana PTSD study from the state of Colorado. And that itself will still be just a phase two study. But I think we're well on the way, and hopefully by 2021, or perhaps even earlier if, if we manage to raise more money, um, to do things in parallel rather than in sequence, we'll have psychedelics approved as prescription medicines. Got it. You, you reminded me of an article I read just the other day about the... Um the situation with generic drugs that pharmaceutical companies make so little money off them that in some cases they stopped uh, manufacturing them and the prices have shot up for what were incredibly cheap medications. But uh, that's a whole other side of the story. Um, Rick, yeah. Rick, in addition to some of the, the things we've talked about already, treatment for PTSD, uh, anxiety, um, just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about people who are terminally ill or in um, end-of-life situations. Yeah. Uh, you're going to be one of the, the panelists, I guess that's the right word, appearing yeah. uh, at a screening of a film uh, in Santa Cruz. 
and I'll give details of that out uh, later in the show. But uh, the film is called um, Dying to Know. It's uh, really about the uh, the friendship of Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, a.k.a. Ramdas, and uh, um, how they came together, especially um, after years of, um, I guess, uh, of being out of touch a little bit mm-hmm. uh, when Timothy Leary was dying in uh, the 1990s. Um, tell me about the use of, I'm not sure which psychedelics, but the use of psychedelics for people who are confronting death. Well, the psychedelics that have been explored and are being explored to help people confront death are LSD, psilocybin, and MDMA. Uh-huh. And there also has been work with ayahuasca, uh, with peyote, which has mescaline. But the, the research is focusing on uh, psilocybin, MDMA, and LSD. And these, again, are not drugs that are administered by themselves, but these are drugs that are administered to enhance the psychotherapeutic process. And we would say that the psychotherapeutic process is what creates the context that it helps people deal with the difficult emotions of uh, relating to uh, their impending death that can make it a therapeutic experience. And basically there's um, two aspects of the therapy. One is to bring to the surface people's fears and anxieties that they often suppress because they're, they're so terrifying about their, you know, the transitory nature of life. But then the other part, once they've dealt with all those fears and anxieties, they're able to sometimes connect with uh, deeper, deeper spiritual experiences that connect them up with this web of life, the whole 13-plus billion years history of the universe. People are able to draw strength from this uh, transcendence of time and space. doesn't mean that people think necessarily that there's you know, an afterlife or a heaven or reincarnation necessarily, but just that, that life is precious and to be appreciated and that death is a natural aspect of life. What we've found in practice is once people can acknowledge what's actually happening to them and the natural aspect of death that isn't uh, totally to be feared, that they can then appreciate that they have limited time and then invest themselves more in the time that they do have, wrap up their affairs with their family, enjoy the time that they have, and then then people um, can actually um, live longer. So it's the acknowledgement of reality rather than the denial of reality that uh, prolongs life. And so the psychedelics that are um, being investigated uh, are in part possible because people are more scared of dying than they are of drugs. <laughs> and that's what's enabled us to sort of help get public support and regulatory approval for this whole line of research, which actually began in the, the 60s. Albert, uh, you know, there's a lot of work with LSD, with cancer patients. Aldous Huxley in 1963 died under the influence of LSD as a way to help him with the transition. Um, you know, Historically, for thousands of years, people have used psychedelics to help in the transition for dying. And so I think that we're just recovering kind of a lost bit of human wisdom and merging it with our sort of Western scientific culture to um, deepen people's appreciation for life and death. You know, as you say that, I'm struck by uh, something and it, it, it goes to the heart of this, this question that I've been asking myself. Why are psychedelics different from other kinds of, quote-unquote, medication, if they, if they have medical uses? Uh, and especially those used, uh, you know, for psychotherapeutic purposes today. And one thing that seems entirely different is 
we're very comfortable talking about medications in chemical materialist language. So we can say, uh, take this antidepressant because it will increase your serotonin levels in your brain. And we have a model of depression that seems to involve decreased serotonin, uh, you know, and so on. With um, psychedelics, at least if you're any example, and I think you are a good example, you almost always have to use language that is not materialist, not uh, physicalist, not neurochemical. Uh, it's language that borders on metaphysical, spiritual, or at least psychological. Uh, you talk about opening up the subconscious. You talk about easing fears. All that language. And is there is there a, a huge cultural divide between those two ways of looking at a medication? And is that part of the problem uh, that people have getting their heads around psychedelics in this context? Um, it, it, it is, um, because what we're not used to um, is this idea that a few experiences mediated by a drug can have profound, lasting consequences, and that you don't need to take a drug every day to correct some biochemical deficit. But what I think is perhaps a misunderstanding here is that psychedelics are... Uh, you know, physical substances, they affect the brains in physical ways. Mm -hmm. And it's because, for example, MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala, which is the fear processing part of the brain. It enhances activity in the frontal cortex, where people put things in context and association. And under the influence of MDMA, people can look at, re-experience a trauma without the fear and then when they reconsolidate the memory, which is what we're learning now about the physical properties of memory, that you recreate the memory every time you think about something, which is how memories can change. And if you can um, have a memory of a traumatic experience when you're feeling safe and differentiate it from when the trauma happened, then when you reconsolidate the memory, it's not connected to all those fear tags. So there are biological physical explanations for how psychedelics can have a lasting therapeutic effect. And the brains can be rewired and mm -hmm. new patterns can be developed, new neurons can be uh, produced. And so I think that while we might use spiritual language and talk about the unconscious, there are physical substrates for all of this. And I think it's that coming together of the understanding of the power of the mind, the power of the experience with the understanding of how our bodies actually work that is producing sort of new potentials for healing. And what we already know from research with the traditional psychiatric medications is that when you study the psychiatric medications by themselves as compared to psychotherapies, as compared to psychotherapy combined with medications, that it's the combination of psychotherapy with people on medications that works better than just giving the therapy alone or giving the medicine alone. And so psychedelics are a prime example of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy combined with the goal of liberating people from needing uh, daily medication. Um, so I, I had this hunch that if you could simply describe it in cold chemical language and get touchy-feely terms out of it, um, and say that, oh, this substance, and give its full chemical name, don't call it ecstasy, for God's sakes, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, say it corrects an imbalance of this or that neurochemical uh, or, you know, uh, neurological activity, that there would be some people who would be much more comfortable with it, ironically, than, um, than the way uh, we tend to describe these things 
these days. Maybe I'm totally wrong. And by the way, uh, the example I gave of, of serotonin, I mean, I understand that that's not even necessarily correct. Uh, and yet a lot of people carry that idea around with them that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors treat depression uh, by means of increasing serotonin levels. Um, and that just just hearing it that way makes a lot of people much more comfortable, you know? Right. Um, well, well, well you're, you're right. I mean, we we are in a culture that um, has a lot of confidence in uh, sort of physical explanation. Yes, yes. But, but but at the same time, when we talk about making a drug into a medicine with the FDA, what we're required to do is prove safety and efficacy, but we don't have to have the vaguest idea of how it works. So the idea of mechanism of action isn't required. And ah, so, it isn't, huh? Yeah, no. I mean, as you just said, we don't really know how the uh, SSRIs work. Right. Exactly. So the FDA, in the business of trying to reduce suffering, says, you know, we might find that something helps, you know, decades before we know how it works. So, But we should implement it now. And so what we're doing with MAPS's limited resources is have focused on the therapy studies and not on these biochemical explanations. However, because we are now starting to show benefits, other people, government-funded academic researchers, trying to figure out how it works. And I think a lot of people value and will trust those kind of physiological explanations. And when I say that um, we're starting to do research with uh, fMRI and take people who have PTSD put them into an fMRI scanner and see how their brains function and then treat them with MDMA and then scan them afterwards. And we are showing differences in brain function. And that for many people, that will be more persuasive yes. than the subjects themselves saying, wow, my <laughs> life is different. I've got my life back. I feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing that's uh, different uh, about psychedelics from uh, a lot of other medic- medications, and I think you, um, you mentioned it, is that your model is that giving people uh, something like MDMA maybe once, maybe a small number of times. Usually three times. Three times, okay. Three times, and then no more is enough to get them out of a, a bad state, whether it's PTSD or, or something else you're looking at, which is very different. I mean, yes, I, I could say I took a course of antibiotics and it cured me of the plague, you know, and I never had to take it again. So there are medications like that in the conventional f- pharmacopoeia, but um, but with psychedelics, it's a little different. And the other thing is that they treat you by taking you out of a no- so-called normal state, which is another thing. Drugs and therapies are supposed to bring you back to normal, right? And maybe another thing that makes people um, extremely uncomfortable with psychedelics is that if they work, they work by pulling you out of the so-called normal condition. Well, there's two parts. One part is that MAPS, after we're nonprofit organizations, so we're focused on the healing, not on maximizing profit and the number of times people need to take these drugs. Mm-hmm. So we have a fundamental different orientation than for-profit companies. Now that, of course, makes it um, difficult for us to raise the money because we're not looking for investors; we're looking for socially conscious donors. Um, at the same time, though, when we talk about people with post-traumatic stress disorder, with anxiety about dying, with um, autism, with uh, you know social anxiety from autistic uh, processing, from uh, drug addicts and, and drug-dependent people, those are not necessarily normal. I think we've kind of normal states of being. We've kind of accepted in our culture this 
low-lying or sometimes not so low-lying level of trauma that you know anybody can get just from reading the newspaper and seeing about the horrors that are taking place all over the world. You can be traumatized, you know, not necessarily in your own life, but just being empathic with what's happening to people all over the world. And so I think we've gotten used to kind of normal state of being that isn't really that healthy or normal. Um, but I think what you're pointing to is that these psychedelics and marijuana change people's consciousness from the normal way of processing. And what we're trying to do is to show that these temporary um, excursions into non-ordinary states of consciousness can enhance the ordinary functioning and that people do come back. I think that was one of the lessons of the 60s, too, with Tim Leary and others trying to take LSD every day for months and months at a time. And, you know, that, that these experiences are part of the spectrum of human their human range of consciousness, but that they're not inherently better than normal consciousness, than waking daytime consciousness, and that we want to enhance the normal rather than overvalue, you know, the mystic or the abnormal. They're just seem in a way especially intriguing because they're so remote and have been so inaccessible for many people, but that they're not inherently any better. And in fact, I think what's really um, the best and what we're trying to say with a lot of the research is that what's best is being, you know, waking up, not having any drugs. And, you know, of course, our brains are drug factories, but being, um, you know, alert and aware and having enriched our non-drug state and that that's the real goal and i think that's what will help us really integrate this into society and overcome people's anxieties because we're not talking about everybody should uh, do these drugs and you know move to a mountaintop and meditate we're talking about using these drugs to enhance the daily life of living in our culture dealing with the challenges um, falling in love raising a family you know working and contributing and then uh, you know gracefully accepting our decline and death I imagine that you you can't have spent so much of your life thinking about and uh, I imagine doing or using some of these these compounds without having it affect your your sense of the universe of being of the mind and uh, individual consciousness collective consciousness whatever I, I'd be interested in knowing what what your worldview is at this point yeah, as a result well, of this I'm um, pretty skeptical and. Very, uh, I would say, if anything, my religion is science. You know, I, I do feel strongly Jewish uh, in a more cultural way. Um, and my personal worldview, I think, is um, I, I don't really believe in this personal reincarnation. I don't really believe in uh, heaven or hell. I think those are the, they're here on earth, what we've created here. I think that we're, um, you know, like a, an ocean, you know, and there'll be a wave, and there'll be a little drop, and that's our individuality, and then we fall back into the ocean. And but, but I do believe that there are ripples, you could say, of ev everything that's ever happened, and that there is this kind of collective unconscious, and that under certain states of mind, we can actually tune in to experiences that have happened to others in the past that are emotionally resonant with issues that we're dealing with now. Um, but that the focus should not be so much on, you know, what those past experiences were like, but how do they impact our life? How do they help us process the 
current situation that we are in our body and our limited time on earth now. So I, I feel spiritual without um, feeling particularly religious, and I feel scientific without feeling overly materialistic. Mm-hmm. And I guess I basically feel like one life is enough. What a gift. What a miracle. Uh, Rick, I watched uh, some videos of you talking um, on Andrew Sullivan's blog, uh, where you answered questions from his readers. And in one of them, you said, uh, now that you've... Have you passed the 60-year the milestone? Yeah, I just turned 61. And you were saying you were kind of thinking it was time for an LSD experience. Yes. Have, yes. You, have you done that? Yeah, yeah. And what was it like? Uh, it was um, tremendously helpful. I, I think that it's something that makes sense throughout the lifespan. Some people used to say, you know, you, you take a psychedelic, you get the message, then you hang up the phone. You know, that, that was sort of part of this idea that, um, you know, these are initiatory tools, they don't keep you in this um, state of consciousness, and then, then you need to do all this work to ground it, which is true. But I do believe that psychedelics have a different role throughout the lifespan, but that at every decade of my life, there's been um, value in sort of dipping into this kind of consciousness and seeing what I can uh, learn from it and how it enhances my daily life. So I, I anticipate um, you know, continuing to have these experiences throughout the rest of my life. How was this latest one helpful? Well, for me, there was this uh, recognition of aging, which is important, this kind of uh, acknowledgement that, um, you know, death is a reality and that, that I should really be focusing on what I most want to do. Um, this growing sense of appreciation of the moment. I mean, we always have a chance to be, you know, thinking about um, what we're going to do tomorrow, where we're going to, and we don't enjoy the moment as much. So it, it helped me in that way. Um, it sort of reaffirmed um, this love I feel for my wife. And, you know, now we've just been um, celebrating our 21st uh, wedding anniversary. Um, so it, it helped in that regard. It, it helped for me in um, kind of letting go of my kids as they go off to college, you know, that, that kind of phase of life where, uh, you know, you're raising a family and then moving on to the next phase. And it also helped me to um, appreciate, in a way, the hope that, psychedelics and these spiritual experiences can actually counter a lot of the horrors that we see in the world right now and the hatreds that that even though it's fragile these experiences and hard to communicate and hard to experience that that somehow or other i think the the idealism of the 60s that these psychedelic experiences can have beneficial political outcomes um, when millions and billions of people would be free to experience them that that it's not always, you know, left-wing hippie radicalism, but that there's a, a way in which we as a culture need to, you know, understand the globalization that's happening, you know, bumping up against people that are different from us and appreciate them rather than want to kill them, and that the, the power of these experiences um, and the importance of the mission that I've been on was kind of reaffirmed by my LSD experience. Well, Rick, thank you so much. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to do so. And uh, um, if I could ask you a question. Absolutely. <laughs> um, what would you say, you know, in, in your experience, has been the role of psychedelics, and, and what have been the um, lasting impacts? 
It's funny because almost no one ever asked me a question. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I I think like you, I had uh, some experiences when I was in my um, my late teens. I kind of had some insights before I took uh, LSD and a few other things, and it kind of confirmed things that I was already coming to realize. And I think you put it pretty well in what you just said. Uh, so yes, it had a big impact. Honestly, uh, mushrooms never worked for me. They made uh-huh. me very anxious. MDMA, uh, incredible. Um, yeah. it, it actually saved a relationship I was in. I would give it credit for that. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's well, my experience. Well, well, uh, you know, you said almost nobody ever asked you a question. So there, there was a um, a linguist at Harvard who was. Um, interested in our MDMA research. And so she did an analysis of the transcripts of the MDMA sessions for post-traumatic stress disorder. And she figured out that there was a way, based on some things that people said, to tell who got the placebo and who got the MDMA. (laughs) That the therapist had missed, that nobody noticed until she did this analysis of the uh, transcripts. And what she found that distinguished the um, people who got the MDMA from the people who got the placebo is that at some point during the MDMA session, uh, the people that got the full-dose MDMA asked the therapist how they were feeling. (laughs) Oh, that is fascinating. Uh, And it makes sense, of course, if you know anything about MDMA. Uh, The empathy is very powerful. Um, Yeah, it was a shocking thing. Yeah. And that is the end of the interview. I was uh, about to finish things off when Rick turned the tables on me there for a minute. Rick Doblin, again, is the executive director and founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. You can learn more about them at maps.org. And you can learn more about this program and listen to past shows at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back with another edition of the 7th Avenue Project next week.